The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 182 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in the show are my own, not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that are privileged to as a result of my current employment. And I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, folks, due to the popular demand of our, <clears throat> our episode 179, Defending Your Company Against Supply Chain Attacks with Jim Ralph, we had to bring it back on last week, folks. It was nice to hear again Jim breaking down what companies should be doing to defend their net, defend themselves against supply chain attacks and how CISOs should be thinking about their DevOps programs moving forward. He also gave his thoughts on how the new U.S. administration should shape cybersecurity policy, which the timing is great on that since Biden's administration just put out the new executive order. Jim also talked about if the sanctions against Russia went far enough to be a successful deterrent against future attacks. You know, he wrapped up the show with his thoughts on the cybersecurity job market and the talent war, and he, was break, he broke down what employee retention should really look like. All this, folks, and much, much more on Encore episode number 179 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, we're on at least 11 different playback mediums. You can find us everywhere. <clears throat> that was uh, episode 179, Defending Your Company Against Cyber Supply Chain Attacks, on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, you can you seen it all in the news, right? Solar winds and the colonial pipeline, ransomware attacks are happening like crazy. Biden puts out the new EO. I had to bring on a friend of the show, uh, former director of cybersecurity at CISA and current founder and CEO of Next5, Brian Ware. Brian is a highly regarded technology leader and innovator. He started companies, patented technologies, raised venture capital and private equity, and recently served as the nation's leading cybersecurity executive at CISA. Brian is the CEO of Next5, a technology-focused business intelligence company ensuring U.S. leadership in critical and emerging technologies, including AI, quantum space, bio, and more. He serves on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Cybersecurity and as advisor to technology companies and investors. Prior to founding Next5, Brian was the first presidentially appointed director of cybersecurity at CISA, leading the 1,000-person, $1.25 billion organization through a period of intense volatility and aggressive interference from nation-state adversaries. At CISA, Brian developed the agency's first five-year strategy and plan to modernize its sensor and computing infrastructure, transform the way the agency delivers services, and scale the agency to protect U.S. critical infrastructure. Under his leadership, CISA's operational partnerships with the private sector, national security community, and intelligence international partners were significantly enhanced. Prior to his operational role at CISA, Brian 
was an assistant secretary at DHS, serving as the secretary's advisor on cybersecurity and emerging technology matters and leading strategic initiatives across the U.S. government and, and allies to counter Chinese espionage and unfair business practices. Brian is an entrepreneur, co-founding of, of an Intel artificial intelligence company in 1998, which he led as CEO through multiple rounds of venture capital investment until it was acquired in 2013 by Haystacks. After serving as CTO of Haystacks for several years, during which he helped the company acquire leading cloud technology and cybersecurity companies. Brian took over as CEO of Haystacks in 2016 until its acquisition in 2018. Brian started his professional career at leading defense contractors working on advanced technology platforms like the Star Wars program, early UAV payloads, and immersive simulation. And he holds a degree in applied optics from Rose Holman Institute of Technology. It's my pleasure to introduce the former director of cybersecurity at CISA, current founder and CEO of Next5, Mr. Brian Ware. Brian, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, buddy. Oh, so glad to be here. Thank you. Yeah, man, it's been a while since we were hanging out. I mean, it's been, you know, since the pandemic, we were able to get together down in Scottsdale for a sign-in event and really hang. You were still at CISA then, and it was great to catch up with you. And I'm, I'm always pleased when I get a chance to hang around. You get, you're like-minded, and you're just you're killing it out there. And so and I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Was that right before or right after RSA? Because it was, if it was right before, it was, it was potentially my last time on an airplane. When was that? It was, <laughs> I, I know it was January, February of, of last year. <laughs> yeah, it was January, right? It was Scottsdale in January. So that might've been my last time also. We'll look at, you know, next time we'll, we'll have to find a, a, another warm place to go hang out at some point uh, this winter. It's just a lesson, Andy, that when you've got an opportunity to be at a resort in Scottsdale drinking wine, um, you should you should take full advantage of it and treat it like it's your last because <laughs> it was it our actually last. might be that's right it's that's it might be I know and it's lessons for life right you never know Indeed. I love it well cool man look I'm super excited to have you on and um, you've done so much in your career and I know you've embarked on a new journey with Next Five and we'll get into that but I'd love for you to just kind of you know set the stage for the audience around just you know a little bit about your journey and then how did that land you over at CISA. And, um, you know, kind of how did that play out? And definitely want to hear, you know, you know kind of what you're doing next. Yeah, that's awesome. I, um, so I, I started my educational career as a, as a scientist, as a physicist. I thought that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, but then I figured out that wasn't a great college student and certainly didn't want to go get a PhD, which was kind of what the physics required. So I went out to try to get a job, and the first job that I that I got put a computer on my desk instead of putting me in a laboratory. Um, and you know, I was trying to help build simulations of the of the, the Star Wars system, you know, the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, knowing really very little about computers or programming, and, and knowing just enough, you know, optics and physics to be dangerous. Um, and I, I guess the next thing I kind of figured out in my career was I wasn't a great computer programmer either, but I was a pretty decent designer. Uh, I could understand, you know, hard problems and, and try to tra translate those into, into software and the compelling interfaces and, and, and tools for users. And that became um, a real passion of mine and a real strength of mine and um, worked for a number of defense kind of contractors building uh, you, you know, started out a lot of simulations of optical systems for UAVs or very, very early UAVs before we could build UAVs, their payloads. As, um, and uh, eventually some friends and I decided that we were kind of tired of working for the man, so to speak, and, and felt like we could, you know, we could build our own company, 
um, build it to be more of a product company. So uh, we started a company called Digital Sandbox. And Digital Sandbox is all about using um, what, what now everyone calls AI, um, but just using analytics, good algorithms to to make reason to reason about and make predictions about the future in ways that you could prioritize like the most likely or the most risky things to happen and, and then overlay on those uh, risk management strategies. So we, we built up digital sandbox, ran it through a couple of rounds of venture capital, um, you know, ended up with about a third of our customers were in the law enforcement space and about a third of them in the national security space. And the, the third of them were, were large commercial corporate brands, large banks, the NFL and others. Um, really neat little niche business that I, I learned a lot as the CEO of. And then I sold that to a private equity platform called Haystacks. Uh, and we just kept building, building, uh, you know, taking advantage of a lot of the AI inside of Digital Sandbox and combining it with IT security, cloud security companies to build more of a cyber analytics business. And I left, I left that company as a CEO and then found my way in, into government. Um, you know, I, I've always felt like I was more able to serve national security missions from the outside um, where I could be innovative, where I could be fast, where I could build things. But, um, you know, I, I got to a point in my career where I didn't really know what I wanted to do next from a, a new company perspective or a product perspective. And, and I wanted to do something that was big and impactful and make a difference. And, um, you know, really just jumped at the opportunity to go into DHS uh, and, and to serve. Yeah, that's a really cool observation, you know, point, right, for the audience, because I feel like, you know, I had that same kind of scenario where, I mean, I left the government after 12 years, was, you know, and after I left, I felt like I was actually doing more good mm-hmm. helping, leaning in from the outside than I was when I was there, even though I thought we really did a lot of great work. Yeah. Um, do you feel like your time at CISA, you know, from an entrepreneur standpoint, right, you're, you're, you're building businesses, you're selling them, you know, you got an exit, you go back into the government to serve, great. You... But you also, I think, had the opportunity to maybe see what the next set of problems are. And did uh-huh. you find that that was, you know, something that you were able to glean from your time at CISA to maybe kind of launch your next opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and there's probably a few things there. Like, there's things that are hard for the government to see that we can see easily in the private sector. And then the opposite is true. There are really hard things to see from the private sector that the government can see pretty easily. And so like, just to kind of pull that thread a little bit, you know, I had really cool, um, what, I guess what you would have called user behavior analytics uh, product when I was at Haystacks. Um, I didn't realize until I got to CISA what scale really means and, and what operating at scale really, really means. I mean, yeah. and there are very few products that can operate at that scale. And, and, and that creates an interesting dilemma, right? Because innovation, new companies and new ideas aren't usually proven at scale. That takes a long time. The government, of course, needs new products and new innovation. They need to get access to that so that they can be on the cutting edge where, you know, where the adversary is. They got to be where, where the, where the mission is taking them. But, but, you know, of course they only see those big uh, mature products, that impedance mismatch between like innovative products that can't quite work at government scale, but government needing innovation, but you know, it's not there for them yet. That, that's a really interesting problem that I've now been able to see on both sides and I think it did as I as I transitioned back in the private sector. I was really mindful of like how how do we how do we do this right? How do we you know how do we push 
realism into the maturity of products so that it's not so much smoke and mirrors? Um, how do we get the government comfortable reaching out to the early stage companies, the venture back companies, the, those real leaders and innovators? Um, and, and ultimately, I, I felt oftentimes when I was at CISA that we just weren't getting the best. And, um, and a lot of that was because we're slow at buying things or we're slow at making decisions. But a lot of it, too, is just that um, we're going to have to figure out this innovation ecosystem thing so that it benefits the government more. By the way, that's, that's not a CISA unique problem. Uh, DOD has been grappling with this for, for far more years and, and still has the problem. So uh, I, I just think it's one that's compelling and worth, worth staying focused on. Yeah, it's so true because I feel like, you know, the needs of the private sector – even though there's a scale component to some of that, um, they differ, right? Tolerances mm-hmm. differ. Privacy matters are different. Like, you know, things that you can do for yourself and, you know, on government networks are is different than what maybe the culture of a private sector company may want you or allow you to do. Mm-hmm. Not because they don't have the authority to do it or you can't get consent, but just the company culture might say, hey, so it's kind of interesting to think through when you think about the private sector demands versus the, uh, at the masses, not not say like the Fortune 50, right? Um, yeah. But and then the SMB market, yeah. You bring up some really cool cool points. You know, there was something that I was seeing the other day. You know, obviously everything going on with you know post solar winds, and now you've got the Russian sanctions, and you've got you know the, the colonial pipeline. But you know, we'll, we can dive into that here in a little bit. But I, I did want to ask you about CISA's getting granted subpoena authority. Mm-hmm. And, you know, were you back, were you a part of any of that? How'd that play mm-hmm. out? And what do you think the benefits, you know, pros and cons of that are? Yeah. I mean, so subpoena is, pro- I don't know, I'm not a lawyer and I don't speak Latin or assuming that's kind of a Latin word. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> um, it probably has like a lot of really big definitional meaning. And what, but when I hear subpoena, you know, I think FBI or a judge or whatever else and, that's the mental model that comes with it, but that's really not what we had in mind and, and what was given to CISA. So the use of that word, the administrative subpoena in CISA's case solves a very, very specific and really interesting problem. And, and that is that internet service providers, Cox, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and so forth, they have to protect the identity of their customers and Yet, CISA would often see a what we knew to be, um, you know, a manufacturing device, or we knew to be, an, um, you know, some IoT device or SCADA system or medical device um, connected directly to the internet with open vulnerabilities. But but we, all we knew were was the IP address, and we so we had no way to inform that victim. Uh, or help that victim, uh, or, or obviously, ideally, help them before they become victims to yeah. to change that configuration, to patch that device, to remove the device from the internet. So, in this case, that administrative subpoena is a very powerful tool. We can, when we see, when we learn about a significant systemic vulnerability, um, and we have information on internet connected devices in U.S. domain space that have that uh, vulnerability, uh, we can now. Uh, request the internet service provider to identify who that company is so that we can notify them. That's the only thing it does. It doesn't compel them to do anything for us, um, provide us with information back. Listen to me saying us like I'm still a CISA. That's awesome. Um, It just just gives CISA the ability to do a better job 
of that part of the public service they have, which is from our vantage point, wherever that came from, some Intel community tip or another kind of tip or our own scanning and research to identify the victim so that they can, you know, so they can protect themselves. Yeah. And, 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 you know, look, it's been a little while since I've been dealing with subpoenas in my, in my law enforcement time, but the administrative subpoena, which I think you appropriately clarified for me, right, is the ability to just go ahead and do it, right? You can go yeah. ahead without having to go to a court or go to a judge's, you track it, yep, we're making that request and you kind of move on. Like it's, it's a blanket authority to say, yes, you're authorized to go do that, which is, which is fantastic, right? Because speed is of the essence. I don't know how many times, even in the law enforcement arena, where we would have a server we take down somewhere around the world and we have all these victims we're trying to figure out. And then you got to go figure it all out. And you start getting subpoenas for all that log data, you know, the whole thing becomes a time consuming, right? So I think that's a really great step forward. Um, and, and I'm looking forward to what work system can do there, but uh, kudos to you to kind of, you know, set the stage for that and, and then hopefully, you know, get that, you know, get that done. So I think that's a really big deal. Um, and, and I think it puts CISA in a much better operational place than, than maybe previously, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an arms race, right? Like once, once a vulnerability is known, once that CVE is published, then adversaries are seeking to exploit it as quickly as possible. And so then CISA wants to try to match that speed um, by trying to find where those vulnerabilities may exist. And it's one thing to do that in the .gov where we've got, you know, sensors, uh, as well as authorities. It's, it's something else entirely to do that in, in the private sector where we don't have sensors, we don't have authorities. And so this, this is a really powerful thing to, again, try to keep pace with that adversary. Um, hey, company X, you, you got this device, it has this vulnerability, you got, it's a matter of time before it's going to be exploited. You know, let's, let's, you know, pull, pull it off the net for right now, get it patched, get it, get it addressed. Yeah, no, super cool, man. So before we go to break, I'd love to just, I want to tee up, you know, kind of your, your current venture. Um, so, so what is, what was the idea behind next five? So the idea behind next five is, is in the name too. It's, it's like, what is the world from a technology perspective? What is it going to look like um, really through the next five years? And, and what we've, what we've done is we've built a, a matrix of 12 critical and emerging technologies that will be the technologies that will dominate um, our technical discussions. These will be the, the, the technologies that valuable companies have leveraged or valuable companies are built around. Um, and of course, technology translates to economic success and technology translates to national success you know, and, and oftentimes national security. So those, those technologies, which are things like quantum computing and artificial intelligence, uh, autonomy, biotech, green tech, space, uh, satellites, um, and others. Uh, there's, there's 12 of them. They're, we're tracking those with deep coverage to try to understand uh, how quickly they're emerging, what markets they're disrupting, who the winners and leaders are on a country basis and a company basis, patent holder citations, and so forth. Um, really to, you know, our goal is to, to see U.S. companies and, and Western companies excel and lead in those technologies. And then we track three cross-cutting risk factors. So cybersecurity, you know, the thing we're talking mostly about today is, is one of those cross-cutting risk factors. Um, supply chain uh, resilience is another one of those. And the other one is what we call geopolitical factors. So geopolitical factors are things that governments are going to do that are going to change the outcomes of those technologies. And, and so the best example here is Huawei, right? So Huawei 
one of our technology areas is next-gen uh, communications uh, or 5G. And uh, two years ago, Huawei had high 90% of global market share in 5G, a series of geopolitical factors or policy decisions the U.S. government made um, and our allies uh, followed, uh, eventually took away maybe 40, 50% of the global addressable market for Huawei. And so now companies, Western companies that had less than a percent in global market share have a whole new market that is available to them. And, and of course, all these policy changes were made because we saw significant cybersecurity risks. Um, but when we took action against, against Huawei for kind of unfair trade practices, as well as, as being a surveillance arm of, of, of the Chinese government, um, that came with uh, this so-called entity designation that prohibits U.S. companies from exporting technology to them. So we can't sell chips to them. We can't sell the Android operating system to them. So that's the supply chain impact. So, you know, a cybersecurity driver that led to geopolitical considerations that, that have now had supply chain impacts, they've opened up new markets for some companies and they've taken away market share for chip exporters, as an example. And, and we're going to continue to see these things play out over the next five years. So we're really trying to track them carefully and closely and then provide business intelligence and strategic advisory to U.S. companies so that we... Um, are sensitive to those 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 things that are on the horizon, and, and ultimately to create the businesses that are 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 the world's leaders um, five years from now. I love it, man. All right, folks, we're going to transition to commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram. by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause some quick messages from our sponsors, and we're right back with founder and CEO of Next5, Mr. Brian Ware. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. 
By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with founder and CEO of Next5, Brian Ware. Well, Brian, there's been no shortage of headlines here recently. Um, you, know, you know, for those of us that have been close to this for a long time, some of it we'd say, man, this is kind of the stuff we've been talking about and trying to prepare for for a decade. Um, others seem to think that this is this all new stuff, right? So I'd love to get your take on, you know, kind of solar winds. We don't need you to go into a deep dive on what it is. I think everyone's been hitting that, but you know, I'd love to get your take on the kind of the, you know, the fallout of where you think things are going to go post solar winds, um, you know, kind of that led to the Russian sanctions and kind of if you think those will be effective and where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's all old and new again at the same time, right? I mean, I think that all the old cyber guys aren't surprised. Um, all the folks that are surprised it's not that they weren't paying attention. It's just that they don't quite get the state of software networks, you know, all these services underneath, underneath the covers. Um, so, you know, there's just so many SolarWinds was such a complex engagement from, from the adversary's perspective. They use so many different types of vulnerabilities and so many different types of tactic, tactics, techniques, and procedures that, you know, on their own, I guess, weren't completely unexpected or novel, but put together, they show just how, um, you know, how hard it is to be um, a cyber defender these days. And I guess it, what's been on my mind recently is, you know, we've made a bunch of decisions on the IT side over the last several years that have enabled some of these chaining of, of techniques to be even more successful than than I think any of us would have would have expected by default. I mean, we've got such tightly integrated systems now, where where we wanted to remove passwords or remove logins from all those systems, and we wanted to have one 
you know, uh, tightly integrated authentication and identity system in the enterprise for almost every enterprise that's Active Directory. And as soon as the adversary owns Active Directory, they own your entire network. Um, so, I mean, I feel like we're going to have to figure out, you know, are we making the right IT decisions? Can we get those IT companies, and I don't even mean SolarWinds in this case, can we, can we get them to provide more secure environments? We expect security as part of the services and the products that we buy. Um, and I guess the other thing that's kind of you know, troubling is that the cybersecurity products that have received so much venture investment or, or, or capital markets investments, certainly investments from CIOs and government agencies, CISOs, um, you know, they didn't really perform as well as we would have liked uh, or expected from a prevention perspective, from a detection perspective. Um, yes, a number of them have been very capable and useful in post-incident response and in post, you know, after our knowledge in, in um, you know, detecting these kinds of scenarios. But, you know, the adversary had too much time. And I think that this is something that I don't mean it as a criticism necessarily of investments and investors or companies and products, um, although that, that's certainly part of it. I just It shows us how early we still are in, um, you know, in, in this product category, that there's still uh, product to be built. There's still algorithms to be built. There's still new, new products and companies that are going to emerge because for all of the money that we've spent, we still don't have the kind of cybersecurity that we need and expect. So let me ask you, I mean, you're an entrepreneur and, you know, you've, you've been in the venture space. Um, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the way that's structured is that it's typically set up to move quick, show value, and security is not always baked into that process right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. And that, I'm, I may be kind of positioning that as a potential enabler for some of the challenges we're, we're facing, right? Like security is going to cost a lot to bake in up front. That's, it's a, it's a, you know, sunk cost in a lot of people's minds up front in the product space, especially. Um, and we don't want to invest and spend the dollars on that when we can go spend it. it you know, let's just, let's just prove that we can make rev, make money. Yep. And when we make money, we'll bolt it on later, but by then it's almost too late. Yep. Right. Um, what, what's your, I'd love to get your take on that, you know, thought process. And, and do you think there's an opportunity to shift that, you know, in the investment community? Yeah, everything you said is right. I mean, you're supposed to figure out what your core value proposition is, like what the thing is that you uniquely do, the problem that you uniquely solve. And that's where you got to put all of your energy. And that's not, unless you're a cybersecurity product, uh, if you're some kind of, I don't know, marketing product or, or consumer product, security isn't that thing that you're going to do uniquely. And so you spend as little time on it and as little money on it as you can, if, if any at all. But, but I do want to say here, it's not all about those small startups. I mean, we're talking about the biggest companies in the world. I mean, the, the, the vulnerabilities that SolarWinds exposed were more about Microsoft than they were about SolarWinds. And of course, SolarWinds is a you know, multi-billion dollar company. And there were libraries and tools that SolarWinds used that were part of this too, but that were smaller companies. So like it's every end of the ecosystem. And so I think, you know, in the spirit of what you're saying, what we're going to have to find ways to do is 
hold companies accountable for security and not in a, in a punitive sense after there's been an incident, but the, the CIOs and the CISOs and the government agencies that buy IT products are going to have to say, they're going to have to say it's got to be secure and we need it to be more and more provably secure. And I think provably secure is, is a hard concept but but we're we're going to have to take steps along along that spectrum as soon as security is a priority for the buyers the target audience it will become a priority for the companies it'll become an obstacle for the sales guys the investors will see that and respond to it but but in, but until that priority is there um we, we we won't we won't see much progress and so we're going to have to deal with that from you know, across the spectrum and, and, and really arguably um, holding the, the biggest of those companies in particular to a higher standard. So, so look, solar winds happens. We've got sanctions now on Russia, you know, and now the pipeline. Are any of those connected in any way, right? I, I mean, are those events connected? Is, is, is the pipeline event, you know, potentially retaliation for, our, for sanctions? No, I I don't think so. I mean, I I certainly don't have the the access the intelligence have, but I think that the sad state of affairs is that there's a fertile attack surface area across government and infrastructure that makes it easy for adversaries of a variety of types to accomplish their objectives. In the case of solar winds, uh, or at least so-called solar winds sunburst, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that was the SVR, you know, the Russians accomplishing, you know, intelligence gathering, espionage uh, goals. Uh, I think it's completely unrelated that we've got a criminal actor, um, you know, just running their business of, of, of financing, uh, you know, th- themselves. I think the relationship, though, is not only that it's too easy for both of those types of actors to accomplish their objectives, and too hard, seemingly, for us to close those gaps is certainly fast enough and, and provide higher walls and, and more resilience and, and more resistance to them. But, but clearly, we're also ineffective. And I think in the point of your question, we just have not been effective at imposing costs on our adversaries that make them think twice about these kinds of behaviors. I mean, I expect criminals to do crime, and I expect intelligence agencies to to collect intelligence. I mean, that's, that's just kind of the way it's been since, you know, prehistory. Frankly, let's face it. That's a healthy thing. <laughs> like <laughs> countries yes. spying on each other, knowing where the puck is going. Isn't that necessarily a bad thing because it probably prevents war. <laughs> right. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. So, so that I think the real thing is, um, you know, I, I, guess, I guess I have to expect that when the SBR, SBR is successful against us, I, I hope our guys have been equally successful or more successful against them. But we've got to do a better job of making it harder for them to accomplish their goals. And, and, and there's probably some important work that needs to be done on, on, on setting norms. I think the difference between solar winds and hafnium was that hafnium, that, you know, on the Chinese case, c- could have presented real and, and global harm. Uh, in ways that were, you know, not consistent with, with, with getting your intelligence needs met. You know, those, those were, that was completely irresponsible behavior by any actor for any purpose. And then in the case of these criminal actors, 
you know, I guess, you know, <laughs> nobody, nobody gets too upset with some kinds of, uh, of criminal action, but when you can't get gas in your tank across the Eastern part of the United States, or when you're shutting down hospitals and patients aren't getting care, you know, this, this has gone too far. And, and, and I think the, that's ransomware is the one that's really frustrating because we have found almost nothing that, that we have in our tool chest on the Intel side, on the military side, enforcement side, that makes a dent in, in what's really driving these guys, which is they're not getting put behind bars and they're still making money. We've either got to find a way to take these guys off the battlefield, put them in jail or whatever else, or take their money, make it so that they can't get that money. Because again, securing every single possible target, I mean, we've been at this for a long time. We haven't, we're not, that's not right around the corner. We're going to have to do something else to change that calculus. So, so in, in Biden's new EO, right, you know, reading it, right, it's bold changes and significant investments in order to defend the vital institutions that underpin the American way of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a strong statement. Thank mm-hmm. goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you feel like it's, we've, we've known this, we've known how sophisticated our nation state adversaries are for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen the evolution of the criminal, you know, manifesting itself over the last, you know, decade or so. Why do you think it's taking like these events to, for this EO to finally come out to kind of put the pressure on ourselves to be better? Like why now? Yeah, I think, I think there's two or three things. First of all, I don't want to take anything away from the Biden administration. I think that they are putting, they have put forward, at least as appoint, appointees, not yet Senate confirmed, but appointees, probably the, the, the strongest, most senior cybersecurity team in the highest levels of government that we've seen ever. And, and, and I think that, like, kudos to them for, for really putting their money where their mouth is, um, stimulus dollars for cyber, all, all of these other things that they're making it. Um, a focal point. And I think that that's, that's awesome. I think though there's, there's two or three other things I think are set the table for this. One of them is, um, you know, I'll, I'll give this credit to Chris Krebs and, and, and really the public affairs team at CISA. They, for the first time, put cybersecurity on the front page of, of the newspapers and on the, the, the top of every news broadcast because of what was happening with elections. And yes, that was all in a political context, an election context, but CISA and cybersecurity got airplay that they'd never gotten before. And I think they, they, they weren't having any trouble reaching you uh, before, but you know, last November, they started reaching every household in America. And I think that people are a little bit more tuned into this now. There's a more receptive audience. People are paying more attention. And then, of course, I'd add to that, that accelerated by the pandemic and our need to work from home and all of that. Um, but really just trends that have been happening since, you know, Amazon web services uh, became a, a, you know, a multi-billion dollar business. So much of everything that we do is, is inherently digital. And that I think people are becoming, you know, small businesses are becoming more aware of it. Schools are becoming more aware of it. It's just, increasingly the the important part of our life. And I I guess I kind of feel like I've been saying something two or three years ago 
that we needed to treat information technology like the crumbling infrastructure that it is. And not just when we talk about investing in infrastructure, talk about crumbling roads and bridges. Um, it's it's got to be right up there too. You know, when I look at what's happening in, in the Biden administration now, that's that's really what they're doing. I mean, they're looking at that information technology sector and saying, crap, this is, this is super critical to our um, basic essential services. But I think what I love about software and, and IT is it, more than just our essential services, this is what's going to help. This is what has fueled this country's growth and dominance over the last couple of decades. And, um, and it can and should into the future, but we're going to have to make, uh, make these kinds of investments. And so anyway, I think it's just, it's, it's the moment. Yeah. No. I, so, so look, you know, let's just say uh, it's a hypothetical scenario. Well, it's probably not hypothetical. It probably happens to you every day now. Now that you're, you know, you got, you got next five up and up and running. Uh, boardroom calls you in, says, you know, Brian, give us, give us your guidance here. What should we do? You know, CEO of the company wants to know wh- where should I take cyber in the future for, you know, for, uh, you know, in general, right? pick, pick whatever industry you want, but just high level, what's the advice you're going to give them, you know, to kind of be ready for these next five years? <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny you, you're asking me that because, you know, five years ago, if I'd answered that question, it would have been a very technical answer, I think, you know, because I'm a technology guy and I, I like building software and algorithms and all of that. But if I was asked that question today, I would take much more of a governance and organizational like leadership answer to it. And, you know, if there were, I would tell them like, you, you got to make it a priority from the CEO and the board level down. You need to go look at uh, probably NACD National Association of Corporate Directors has guidance on what the boards should be looking at from a cybersecurity perspective. Set uh, the right framework at the top, make it important at the top, make your board educated on this, make it part of your board discussion. And then below that, make sure that you've got someone who's, this is their job and that they're really good at doing that job, whether that's a CIO or a CISO or a CTO or some weird hybrid because, you know, different businesses have different ways that they organize that, but, but, but put someone in charge and give them the resources and hold them accountable. But, but I think, and the reason I answered your question the way that I did, so, so many times in the past, we focused on technical things that needed to be done or even budget things that needed to be done or even hiring things that need to be done. But if it doesn't plug together from top to bottom, you know, ultimately those leaders need support from the board. Ultimately that board needs to be held accountable themselves. And then of course they have to have a specialist that they're, they're holding accountable. So I, I think when I am asked those questions these days, it's really going back to make, make it a priority and make it a priority at the highest level. So you, you referenced the NACD, which, I mean, there's a lot of work happening in that group right now around have, having, giving guidance to board members around having a financial view into their cyber risk to help them manage the cybersecurity you know, liability, uh, at least from what, I, what I'm hearing and kind of seeing. Um, do you see a future there in financial kind of quantif- not, I would call it cyber risk quantification because I don't know if that's it, but like financial, you know, data analytics around financial exposure to cyber risk that enables a top-down view for the boards to help manage the cybersecurity program 
and, and speak in their language as opposed to threat and vulnerability? Yeah, well, listen, I don't think that's the only thing that NACD is recommending because I, would, I wouldn't advocate for trying to financially quantify a risk and then like finding an insurance product that you could offlay that risk onto, right? That, by the way, that has been the kind of guidance that ex- has existed in previous years and that, that companies have taken on. And I don't think that that is, um, certainly it's a tool in the bag, but that's not the solution. And that's, that's not the approach that I'd like to see companies taking. Um, you know, but, but here's the interesting thing about finances and dollars. If you can't put dollars to it, the dollars that you would lose if there was a severe disruption um, or the dollars that you might lose um, if, if you... Uh, if you had a breach that caused uh, penalties, um, the things that are hard to put into dollar terms, like the reputation risk that you could have if you lost um, your your customer's data, when we put those in dollar terms, it helps to justify spending money to make those things not happen. And, And I actually think that above and beyond that, how much more competitive could we be than our, than our, than our competitors, right? How much, how much can we use this as a business advantage? And, you know, I think I'm looking at a lot of things right now in the supply chain space, you know, for the last more than 10 years, supply chain has been all about hyper-efficiency. It's been about speed, speed and low cost. And when you try to optimize for speed and low cost, you can end up with a very brittle, fragile supply chain that is not able to handle disruptions. And I think one of the things that we saw early in this pandemic is like, for crying out loud, you mean we can't get masks in this country? We can't get uh, medical devices uh, on a global basis. We've got, you know, pharmaceutical distribution issues. So I feel like resilience and applied broadly from supply chains to, to cyber can become a huge business advantage when your competitors can't deliver a product or can't deliver a service because they've, you know, they did, they didn't have that resilience built into their plans. So I am hearing a lot more of that conversation, um, you know, at the board level or, or at the level of, of companies that are advising boards. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, Brian, I, I we're about to pressure up on a commercial break here, but when we come back, I, I definitely want to hear about, you know, your work with the world economic forum, but all right, folks, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, founder and CEO of next five, Brian Ware. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure innovationorg or Google Sinet S I N E T. 
In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with founder and CEO of Next5, Mr. Brian Ware. So, Brian, you know, I'd love to get your take on, you know, the guidance you've been giving to the World Economic Forum. I know you sit on their cybersecurity committee and, um, you know, that's a really interesting place around, you know, the metrics they put out around the cybersecurity market and where things are going. Um, But you've got a front row seat to that conversation. So, I'd love to hear kind of how you help steering that along for the future. Yeah, well, you know, I, I love the, the platform that World Economic Forum provides. I mean, they've got access to um, some of the greatest thinkers around the world. They've got access to some of the leading companies around the world. And, and the around the world part is, is important, too, because their events, um, you know, their working groups and so forth are very, um, you know, they're very global. They're not as, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm based here in the D.C. area. Things become kind of D.C. centric or U.S. centric. And so it's been really helpful for me to see the, some of these issues on a global scale. Um, and, and yes, it's, a, it's very contributor focused. So I sit on the, they have a global cyber leaders forum that I'm on as well as a global cyber futures forum. It was this cyber futures that initially attracted me, just this idea of trying to think, think a, a long ways down the road as to you know, wh- where all these things are going. And again, not from a cybersecurity perspective, um, but really, from other economic sectors or civil society, or you know, just just what it, what um, consumers and so forth, what are going to be the future considerations that cybersecurity um, is going to have on those? Uh, one of the interesting uh, engagements, a couple of engagements that I've had with them over the last couple of months, have been around um, 
quantum computing, uh, which I, which I found really fascinating. Um, I have believed for some time that we need to be moving more aggressively as a, as a government, but also larger it companies to, to be ready for, um, you know, uh, quantum computing and, and its implications for for cryptography and encryption. Um, I was I was really pleased to see through the through the WEF lens that there are already a number of companies that are that are making significant steps to to deploy uh, quantum resistant encryption. Um, you know, again, realizing that while while that may be a few years out, it just takes time to move, and particularly the bigger the bigger you are, other governments as well. So one of the things I was advocating for while I was at at, at DHS is, you know, as, as as slow as we move and as big as we are, we, we better have a plan for how to to deploy new encryption methods broadly across government. Um, you know, really in the next uh, couple of years. Uh, even if we don't believe that there's a significant quantum risk for, you know, more than five years, um, it just, you know, it, it's, it's a big job and it takes a long time. So anyway, that's one of the things I've been able to, to engage in with, uh, with WEF. So, you know, the last segment we touched on AI real quick, and I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, the AI race, you know, does, is AI going to help? us move from being more reactive to proactive in this fight um, on the cyber defense side. Um, what are you seeing there? Yeah, AI is going to be profoundly important. I think it already probably is, but it's not, um, you know, right now it's just in, in little, little silos, accelerating little problems, meaningful, but, but, but small. And we're going to see it more and more often. I think, I expect that many things that defenders do will be significantly improved by AI. And the simplest of AI is machine learning to, well, not necessarily the simplest, but for the purpose of this example, just machine learning to see a statistical anomaly. Well, you know, that's, that's hugely valuable because at scale, uh, defenders aren't looking through lots and lots of data. They, they couldn't because they couldn't make sense out of it. Um, if, if they were given an anomaly to go look into and to see how that anomaly may correlate with other data, well, that's, that's going to be the, you know, the, the, the kind of important um, enhancements that we're already getting out of AI, but we're going to continue to. I think that the important thing, though, to remember is AI isn't just in our hands um, on the cybersecurity side. It's in our adversaries' hands, too. And, um, you know, my expectation is that, that they will use AI to find um, you know, vulnerable systems. They will use AI to automate uh, to automate attacks. They will use AI to to help them better understand what they're exfiltrating. And so, it's um, you know, it's an incredibly powerful technology that's going to have transformational benefits. But all of those benefits won't be for good. And I think that we have to keep that in mind. You know, clearly as as we uh, kind of take those steps into the future. Yeah, man. I think it's you know the you hit it on the head with the defender piece. I I think we're going to see some really big strides there. I'm excited about what AI is going to be able to do for us there. And hopefully we'll be able to start to, you know, free up some of our talented practitioners to focus on the complex fun problems stuff that they had to do and make and and, and hopefully shift the culture, you know, the morale in in that space. So, well, that's the thing, man, like all the AI geeks want to have like the general AI, the, the thing that we have all been reading about in science fiction books for so long, but 
you know, if you're sitting in a sock or if you're, um, you know, sitting in many of the today cybersecurity jobs, too much of your time is spent doing dumb stuff, you know, cut, cut this IP, paste it over here, see what you know about it. There are so many areas where, uh, you know, I, I feel like it, in just, you know, every month that goes by, it's not, this is not years out. This is, you know, in, in the, you know, happening right now, these AI enabled enhancements to common workflow processes, common business processes, they're going to unlock the potential for all of our great human beings to, you know, to, to do the kinds of problems, solve the kinds of problems they want to be solving. And that I think are also kind of uniquely, um, you know, human problems, not machine problems. So, so before I let you go, Brian, I gotta, I gotta ask you, like when I, when I get folks like you on the show, I, I always want to you know, go, cause it's a great opportunity for our audience to kind of, you know, think about themselves around in their careers and get some great guidance around. So what would be the, the thing you would tell someone leaving a government position and going out into the private sector and then what would be something you would tell someone leaving the private sector to go into the government? Oh, well, two great, two great things. Um, let me just answer the first, the second one first. Um, go serve, go serve your country if you get the opportunity to do it. And, you know, I went in pretty much with my eyes open, having worked near government for my whole career. Um, you know, I knew that government was more bureaucratic and I knew that government moved slower and I knew all those things. And, and man, it's way more bureaucratic and way slower than you could ever imagine. But, but the people are great and the mission is great. The, the scope of challenges you're going to see is in, in, incredible. You can't see them from any other vantage point. And if you get into the national security space like I did, it's such an eye-opener in what's really happening uh, with our adversaries and so, so go do it. And, and by the way, if you're a CEO, venture back company CEO, and your company is acquired or, or your board gives you the boot, and both of these things have happened to me, no shame there, um, and you've got a two-year non-compete, there is no better place to spend that two-year non-compete than, than serving in, in our government. They need you. They need entrepreneurs. And, and you'll learn so much that you can translate back into your next company. So, so go make it happen. And then for the gubbies that are coming out into the private sector, listen, it's, it's very different in the private sector. I've hired people from government and put them into to companies. Um, it's faster. It's more accountable. It's not just about, it's not just about money, although um, some, some people make more money when they go into the private sector. It's really just that you know you're doing a good job or not doing a good job if your business is being successful, and not just you as an individual, but the whole thing. And so get, get business smart as fast as you can. And, um, and find ways to translate the, the unique perspective the government has into the kind of mission or the product that, um, you know, that you sign up for. Very cool, Brian. Look, I really appreciate you coming on the show tonight. Oh, man, it was my pleasure. I'm glad I got a chance to do it. And uh, thanks so much, Andy. Cool. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show, get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. 
Be sure to join your host, George Ritas, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 